Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Secure Talk. Secure Talk is brought to you by Adequest, your cybersecurity and compliance partner. My name is Mark Schreiner, and I'll be your host for this episode of Secure Talk. Today, we have two guests joining us. We have Mr. Shannon Applecline and Alex Prukshat. Shannon, uh, well, actually, both these guys have just really a wide, diverse uh, backgrounds. They're doing a lot of really super cool things. For example, Shannon is a technical writer, but he has a lot of experience in the blockchain ecosystem. He has worked for ECC cryptography innovator Certicom and Bitcoin leader Blockstream. He's also um, editor-in-chief for Rebooting the Web of Trust. And he's written about 40 different papers on decentralized technologies. He, in addition to that, he enjoys writing on a variety of other topics, including uh, the role-playing industry. And he actually published a four-book history called Designer and Dragons. I could just keep going because he's done a lot of really cool stuff. Uh, but I'm going to jump over to Alex here. Alex Prukshat. Um, He's uh, super passionate and involved with the uh, different technologies related to the P2P economy. Um, Alex was the global head of strategic blockchain projects with Evernim, and he's worked for or with a number of blockchain and technology ventures. He's also co-author of the first ever Bitcoin graphic novel, and uh, that can be found on bitcoincomic.org. He's also uh, written a bunch of other papers and involved in a bunch of other stuff. And I could just keep going and going and going. And instead, I think we'll just get into the show. But uh, these two individuals and some other really cool people were able to get together and collaborate or co-author a book called Self-Sovereign Identity or SSI. And that's what we're going to be primarily talking about today. What is SSI? You know, why is it important? And how as you as an individual or as, a, as an entity can take advantage of some of the developments related to SSI. So gentlemen, how are you today? Great, thank you. Good, good. Yeah. Um, let's, uh, let's do a roll call. Uh, I'm Mark, I'm in Seattle. Where are you guys at, Shannon? Uh, I'm Shannon. I'm on the island of Kauai out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. That explains the fan, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> no need for that here in Seattle this time of year. So are you a permanent resident in Kauai or are you, uh, what do you call it, quarantining in Kauai? <laughs> no, I'm a permanent resident. Uh, we moved out here last January about two months before the COVID hit, and then everything went crazy. Well, you know what? But your, your timing is impeccable. That's amazing. Great. <laughs> I actually um, had some friends that they sailed from, I think it was yeah San Francisco to Hawaii uh, last year. And then after, you know, and it's like a two-week trip, but they got into Hawaii, and then they had to quarantine for two weeks. And they're like, we've been on a sailboat. <laughs> you know, That kind of is quarantine, right? But rules are rules, right? So, well... Oh. Aloha. Okay. And uh, no, uh, uh, Alex, where are you at? I'm based in Madrid in Spain, in Europe. Wow. Okay. And, yeah. So on got, the other side. We got pretty much all the uh, the time zones covered then. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, gentlemen, I, I um, before we jump into this, I just got to say, I, I mean, I, I looked at your, your, your backgrounds and your bios and you guys have done some really cool things. I mean, you know, Shannon, you're a technical writer. You're involved with cryptography, uh, blockchain property rights. Um, you have a four-book history on ro the role-playing industry, Designers and Dragons. I mean, <laughs> that's a pretty 
uh, diverse set of, uh, of, of topics or hobbies and interests and careers. Um, Alex, you're also, you know, you've, you've been involved with the P2P, P2P economy. Uh, you co-authored a Bitcoin graphic novel, which I don't even know what that is. I guess it's a graphic novel okay. about Bitcoin. Is that? That's it. That's yeah. it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you're in Spain. Um, uh, Shannon's in Kauai. Um, so let me, before we start talking about your book, Self-Sovereign Identity, how did you guys come together to collaborate? What yeah, if you want, I, I can share the background of that. Um, well, I started in, in, the, in the SSI space or the self-sovereign identity space in, in, in late 2016, early 2017. And I got really intrigued about it and started working with one of the companies that was really active there. And after a year, I was like, man, this is so complicated. This reminds me so much to Bitcoin in the early days. And it's so difficult to understand anything about it. It would be really, really good to to have something that written down where everything is explained, like at least the the high level stuff, so that you can that guides you through through this jungle. And um, so I noticed there was nothing else, uh, nothing done before like that. And I had published a book before, in about blockchain that became really famous in the Spanish speaking world, and which had that approach. And I thought, okay, let's try to do this. In, in English, and um, we, Drummond, uh, who was a colleague of mine at the time, and myself, we organized that whole thing with Manning, um, who, uh, an American technology publisher. And yeah, and then we organized the team around it. And Ch Shannon, he joined us because Shannon, he's like one of the big guys in the SSI space because he's one of the co-organizers um, of Rebooting Web of Trust and has been a public. Um, an author and co-author of many, many papers about SSI. So he knows the history from the very early days all the way to now. So so it has been a great thing to have him with us as a co-author in, in the book then. Well, that's great. And yeah. I guess that's just kind of a testament to the world that we're in right now, that um, you could be in Spain and, and Shannon can be in, in Hawaii and uh, and you can collaborate and, you know, and, and put out some, some, some really cool stuff. Um, so... Let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, not a little bit, let's talk a lot about your book, uh, Self-Sovereign Identity. First off, I, I, I noticed that, um, you know, one of the, the, the tenets uh, or the premises is that there should be, in your opinion, a shift from the control of digital identities from third-party identity um, providers to the individual. And maybe you can give a little background in terms of why that's important and, and how would you do that? Either one. You guys, yeah. yeah. I think Shannon, Shannon, you're, you're the right person to do that. You've been there from the beginning. Sure. Um, it's funny that Alex said, uh, hey, I started getting into SSI in 2016, talking about it as if it were an established field. Uh, when the truth is, getting into it in 2016, he was there almost from the start as well. Uh, he mentioned the rebooting the Web of Trust uh, design workshops, which Christopher Allen began uh, in, uh, I think it was September or October of 2015. Um, and uh, at the time, the idea was, hey, we're coming up on the 25th anniversary of PGP, Pretty Good Privacy, which was a very early way for people to, in a peer-to-peer -peer method, uh, exchange information in a secure way. Um, and so Chris said, what can we do to commemorate this? You know, thinking, hey, in the next six months, we can do something exciting and fun that will kind of really get people thinking about this again. And one of the really important things about uh, PGP was it was peer-to-peer -peer and equally decentralized. There was not a central party. 
Um, there were a lot of ideas in the air. Uh, Drummond Reed was right there at that first shop too, and he uh, wrote a paper on DPKI, uh, Decentralized uh, Public Key Infrastructure. Uh, but I feel like it really came together uh, the next March when we were in New York. Uh, that was uh, the same March, April, somewhere around there, uh, that ID2020 came out. And ID2020 was a UN-related um, uh, uh, effort uh, related to their SDG 1619, that's their Sustainable Development Goal, uh, which said we want everyone in the world to have a uh, birth identity that is theirs alone by 2030. 2020 was kind of getting along that. And that kind of came together with these ideas of DPKI. Uh, Drummond Reed, that uh, uh, time for rebooting Web of Trust, had a paper that was called uh, Sovereign Identities. Uh, and it all came together to say, hey, why don't we have these decentralized identities? Um, okay, so why is that important? Um, it's important that you can control it. Uh, because we were coming out of this uh, UN-related uh, uh, effort, we were really looking at some of the world problems. And something that was really notable, big, and important, it still is now, but it was getting a lot of attention then, was the refugee crisis. And we were seeing all of these people that were having to uh, flee their home countries because of uh, various types of attacks because of their religion, uh, our, our culture, um, and go to other countries. And they usually could not bring their identity papers with them because if they did so, they would be in endangering the people in the, at their home who stayed behind uh, because then it would be known, hey, some of your relatives fled the country, we're going to punish you. And so we were getting these increasing number of people without any type of identity and having to figure out what to do with them. And like I said, still a huge problem right now. That was one of these mini seeds along with PGP, uh, DPKI, uh, Drummond's work on uh, sovereign identity that kind of came together and said, hey, why don't we have a decentralized identity, our um, SSI, self-sovereign identity, uh, that people can control themselves. And then in a situation like that, uh, they could have these cryptographically encrypted um, identities, which only they could choose to release. So on the one hand, they'd be able to say, hey, here's who I am so that you can actually give me aid as a refugee. And on the other hand, it would be protected. So if a bad person got hold of it, it would be meaningless to them. So that was kind of one of the uh, uh, starts. Um, I'm gonna let Alex give some more in a second, but the one other thing that I wanted to say is, um, when Alex uh, was putting together the uh, book on SSI, Alex and Drummond, uh, what they wanted to do, well, Alex can perhaps uh, correct me here, but one of the things they wanted to do is say, hey, what are all of these different ways in which SSI could be used that it would really improve things? And so to a certain extent, I suspect the answer to your question is the whole book. The whole book says why it's important. I can tell you that the topic that I wrote on specifically, I helped with a little editorial, um, but the topic I wrote on specifically was voting rights, um, something that's become much bigger, especially in the U.S. Uh, in the year since I originally wrote it. But when I originally wrote it, I said, hey, you know, we usually vote in person. This was before uh, COVID. Um, and there are some ways in which we allow uh, more distant voting uh, where you can actually, you know, vote by mail. We all know a lot more about that now. Um, and I started looking at it. And I said, this is kind of this uh, balance between uh, security and accessibility. On the one hand, 
the easier you make it for people to vote remotely. And obviously the next step between beyond voting by mail is voting uh, electronically. The more issues you have to at least think about with security doesn't mean you can't secure it, but it just means you need to think about it. But as I was writing this, I realized it's not just a balance between security and accessibility when we introduce something like SSI. SSI introduced this whole new idea uh, that I termed agency in it. And it's something that I feel like isn't available in a lot of things online. And it's what I felt was transformative. And just to give a few examples of that, um, usually you can't go and say, hey, my vote was recorded. You can a little bit more now. We've seen some states in the U.S. starting to allow it. Uh, in California, where I used to live, people could check. But in Hawaii, where I do now, you can't check. But that's just one of the ways that people can have personal agency that they couldn't via the old way of doing things. Um, and I wrote a few other things, like um, you can actually give people the ability to vote for you if you have these identities, because uh, something that goes hand in hand to it that we may talk more about here is verifiable credentials, where you don't just have an identity, but you have various things where you say this is true about me. Um, and so I can have a verifiable credential that says I have the right to vote in this election, and then I can pass it off to Alex and say, I don't care about this topic. Can you vote on it for me? Obviously, it's far from um, how a lot of the political systems are set up in most of the country, but something that becomes more possible with SSI. Um, you can also change your vote up to the last minute. Estonia is one of the few places that has actually uh, enabled SSI-related voting. They have something called an Estonian ID. You can vote online. And you can change your vote up until the day that the election actually is. I could vote two weeks ahead of time, and then I could see a horrible political ad, decide I don't want to vote for that person <laughs> who released that horrible political ad, and change my vote. So these are just some of the transformative things. And I think Alex might be able to speak more to that. Uh, when they came in with the you know, second or third draft of the book, one of the things that they said was, for each of these chapters, we want you to really go through, look at some of the... Um, main elements of your particular subject and tell us, does it make things worse? Does it make things slightly better? Or does it transform them? And I think it really helped a lot of us to look and say, oh, wow, this is why SSI is really exciting, interesting, because it's transformative. So I've talked enough. No, that's, that's, that's a, a great introduction. Thank you. <laughs> Alex, you want to add on? I, I think um, um, Shannon, he really explained it really well. I mean, it's just like to, to outline, as you might see during this, this dialogue we will have, is that SSI, I mean, the way we often explain it is might change the world as deeply uh, as the internet at the time. Because in, in one way we have about how we explain this is when you go back in time and you think about the internet when it was created, it was really like the defense community and the academic community in the United States, at least for the Western networks and um, that started the whole thing and um, and was was ba all based on a system of trust and in, in that system of trust well defense people and academic people they would exchange each, with each other information they would share um, resources and stuff like that and and from the very beginning there, there were like two key things they didn't think about because they were not a really requirement at the beginning and those two things are like one which was money which was a big discussion in the 90s it's like, okay, um, um, what is the internet money? It has become another big discussion in the last mm -hmm. 10 years with 
cryptocurrencies and all that stuff. And and the second big discussion um, and that that it evoked uh, was identity because because of this trust system where different academics would know each other, like one from Stanford, the other one from Harvard, and whatever. They would know each other by name. They d- didn't need to verify does this person really exist right. because in reality we have these me- um, these machines talking to each other, but we don't know who's behind the machine. And, and and that's where one of the key events of the community, which is the Internet Identity Workshop, got born because they had a little dog with a uh, dog with a mask as a symbol because um, like from this cartoon, you know, you don't know who's behind uh, right. behind the machine. You would see a dog. And, and, and then the second big event, and that's usually how I, how I explain it very often, because this, I mean, Shannon is being really modest because it's true, yes, a rebooting Web of Trust started in 2015, but this, there has been, it's all started with the Internet Identity Workshop that had already started in 2005, I think. And, and the Internet Identity Workshop, um, they had been developing many of the different standards and protocols that created kind of the identity thinking as we know it to today and 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 then um i personally uh, i also i love rebooting web of trust because rebooting web of trust is like a smaller group of people with a very different approach that also make huge contributions to to, to the development of the ssi community while it's true yes it started maybe picking up a little bit of steam but there have been many people thinking about it for many years and christopher allen as shannon mentioned and, and shannon who works really close with him he he kind of summed up the whole thinking around it about, and he came up with the term, okay, self-sovereign identity and summarized the principles and, and gave it a little bit of structure. And, and, and yeah, and since then it has become really big. So the, the thing we try to convey in the book uh, um, is that since it touches upon everything um, and it, especially on this big subject about, okay, we are in this digital world where we, we cannot trust the, other, the people on the other side of the machine how can we create this kind of environment where we can trust these people? And that's one of the possible, but this basically means in the digital economy, it, it, it touches up on everything. I mean, Shannon described right now the situation for the voting systems, but what we describe in the book is, okay, how does this change animal rights? How does this change IOT? How does this change how nation states manage identity? And then we have a whole chapter, wonderful chapter from John Phillips from Australia, where he describes, okay, how can I as a business leader, as a business person, as a developer, create use cases and then we can't try to show them that and and it like basically four big parts in the first part we try to show in, in a general sense what SSI is about so people can kind of understand it the second part talks about all the technology standards and and that means verifiable credentials decentralized identifiers decentralized key management and governance frameworks and other things wallets and the third part is more about the, the ideology um, and and thinking where this is coming from so that means um, and cryptography, thinking from, from the 70s, and the cypherpunks, um, peace, peace movement and identity, and open, the open source community, th- these kind of things, and we touch up on some other stuff. And then the fourth part is really about different use cases, and we will publish some of them on paper and some of them online, and because use cases is basically it's, it's a an, an, never-ending story about all different applications that can be done. Thank you for that. I'm still um, trying to get my mind around, though, right? In your book, you do mention the third-party um, identity providers. Uh, and, and maybe you can just give some examples of today what, what we're using uh, and, and w- how um, SSI would replace that. Just the, you know, a very simplistic example would be fine. Do you want to go, Shannon? Sure. Um, 
Right now, if you have an identity identity on the internet, you mostly have it through some company. Um, my Facebook identity is one of my most important identities because it gets me keeps me in touch with my friends and my family, and it keeps me uh, in touch through some pages with people who are interested in my Designers and Dragons books. Mm -hmm. It's totally controlled with them by them. They have the totally arbitrary ability to turn that off at any time. I could suddenly lose access to you know the thousands of customer base. And even as it is, they've kind of tightened up control where I can only get access to them by paying them for advertising at any large level. But even if you had your own identity, as long as you're using their platform, they would have the right or the ability, maybe not the right and or the right to to exclude you from that platform or community. Right. So how does having your own identity help you in that situation? Well, one of the ways. Uh, one of the things I'd point to, first of all, is uh, the article that Alex mentioned, it, that Chris Allen wrote. It's called uh, The Path to Self-Sovereign Identity. There is a version of it in the book, uh, I believe. And uh, there's also uh, a version of it online on um, uh, lifewithalacrity.com, I think, .com. So it, it, it lays out several things. One of the things that immediately strikes uh, me when you say that is uh, kind of continuity. Uh, I think uh, Chris calls it portability and the uh, path to self-sovereign identity. Uh, something that I can do is even if I become unable to post to Facebook, I could still say to an audience on a different platform, hey, this is me. Um, if, yeah. We've seen yeah. lots of bad people getting banned from Facebook and Twitter, and they've jumped over to you know various other uh, services. So they're not necessarily the best example to use. But if there was self-sovereign identity, they could at least say, I'm the same person on and, this And platform. you wouldn't have to be Mark on Facebook and Mark double double seven on Twitter. You could have one ID and wherever you go, that's where you are. So the other thing to uh, keep in mind with self-sovereign identity, uh, SSI, uh, is that it's not just about you having an identity. It's about hopefully everyone you're related to having identity. And so you say... I won't be able to use the Facebook platform, and that's totally true. But what I can maintain is if I've connected up to all of the people uh, within my uh, group of people, my cloud of people, via self-sovereign identities as opposed to Facebook identities, then I can um, still interact with them on whatever platform. I can still get in touch with them, whereas right now, if I lose Facebook, I don't even know how to get to all of these people. I probably can't even look up who all these people are. And so it's not just about me. It's about this whole community. Uh, and where do you store Where do you store those identities? I mean, obviously, you're not. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you have an address book? <laughs> what I mean, do you have? Ultimately, it's an implementation detail. But uh, more generally, yeah. uh, we've had lots of talks about kind of... Um, self-sovereign enclaves on the internet, you know, storage that you have, vaults, I think is one of the phrases we're using them. Uh, at Rebuing Web of Trust, we've kind of been working through this whole area. And so we've had several people who have been very interested in that exact question of how do we store this information? Um, but if it's portable, uh, if you look at like the GDPR, uh, which came out since we've started working on this. It's the uh, uh, privacy rights in Europe, of course. One of the things you can do under the GTPR is you can uh, demand, I guess, that uh, a site give you all of the information you have in a portable format. 
And so right. it's entirely possible that what would usually happen in an SSI future is that I would usually have my information with someone else. I'd have the right to download it. I, I don't know how far California goes in that same regard. They're the other one who's put a big law up there. And then once I download, I, I could maybe upload to some other service. But the two points would be it's mine and I can access it and I can choose what to do it with it. I guess that's three points. Well, I mean, everything you say seems to make sense and it seems like a, like a no brainer, right? Um, and why wouldn't I want to have my own uh, identity that I control? And it, you know, it, it, it bothers me that Facebook has so much control and, 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 you know, I'm just picking on them, but there's basically any platform out there that, um, they they can shut you off. They have access to all of our data, et cetera, so on and so forth. But let me ask you, are the major impediments towards moving to, to an SSI paradigm, are they technological or is it more just resistance from people not getting their mind around it? What's 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 slowing this down or is it is it is it not slowing down? Is it is it accelerating? Let me give a quick and maybe I'll with some more. Uh, my quick answer is that we've seen it accelerating, um, at least on the developer side. Uh, Drummond, you know, wrote the first Sovereign ID paper in uh, spring of 2016. By fall of 2017, we had a whole back room of people, 30 or 40 people uh, at like our fifth conference. We're all really interested in putting it together. Uh, it since has been moved to W3C and is approaching finalization as a spec. I don't know the exact uh, where it is there. So at least developer-wise, it's uh, rapidly accelerating. I personally see the uh, main impediments convincing people it's important. Uh, at least one of the papers that I led was, you know, how do you tell your dad why self-sovereign identity is, is important? Um, and bootstrapping. Uh, there's a real question of how do you get this from nothing to something that's widely supported. Alex, do you have more on the impediments and the uh, how things are going forward? Sure. Yeah, I, I think one really good, um, beautiful answer, I don't know if you guys had the opportunity to watch it, just this documentary, The Social Dilemma on, on Netflix, that, that I think gives a really extensive answer with many replies about about why this is important, like uh, as the world is today. I mean, Chadan, he, he's pointing at it already, just talking about the voiding systems and implications, but just the whole background about um, um, how our attention is being commercialized and how not only that, it's not only being commercialized, um, we are not as free as we think we are because, because the, I mean, the, the, the kind of informi information that we are being fed with is what defines who we are. And this has always been the case but it has never been um, as much the case as it is today. And um, so if you get really, really bad food all the time, and then you, you might behave uh, correspondingly, at least from an intellectual point, point of view. But th that's one point, one aspect, but it also reflects, I think, that in general, like beyond the geeks um, and freaks that, that uh, into technology and privacy and cybersecurity and open source, which are usually the kind of people I kind of identify in the space that would be interested in something like this. For everyone else who is not, all these reasons are not really compelling because for them it's like, okay, how, how do I get what I want in the quickest, cheapest way? Cheap is like free. I mean, I don't care. Yeah, you use my data, do whatever you want with my data. 
um, and 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 I think the complexity has been there in the SSI space that that a lot of the SSI people involved, but that usually come from the privacy advocating, open source, etc. kind of people. Um, um, they, they care about that problem, but most of everyone, most of the people, which is the majority, they do not really care. So that that's one challenge, certainly. But then there, there, there's one big advantage, and I think there's a there has been, as we, as we all know, at least from my point of view, that's the case, a big power shift in the last 20 years. And um, I was just talking with a friend about it like two hours ago, and um, the establishment, the establishment of the, the established money, for example, or and the establishment as, as the establishment as the governments, they're not really happy with the technology changes happening around the world. I mean, Silicon Valley as an oligopoly or monopoly on technology around the world is happy about it because they made a, a lot of money with it. But everyone else is not really happy because it, 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 in the big game of, of power distribution around the world, um, the upcoming Amazons, Google, Facebook, Twitter, Apple, etc., they are paying because they 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 are sitting there alone, um, extracting um, wealth from the whole world, and and with very few people, and, and 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 I think first of all they are very often like enemies between themselves, and we've seen like some companies like Microsoft that have seen a big opportunity in the SSI space. But I think not only because they see a business there, also for strategic reasons for themselves, but how they see how they can weaken their competitors in the technology space. And but then also governments, because governments they they see their position weaken all the time. I mean, you see this very clearly in the European Union, where they try to find big American multinational companies. But I mean, I'm saying and big American technology um, technology companies because usually the big ones come from America. If they would be coming from somewhere else, sure. it would be from somewhere else. It doesn't really matter. So um, because um, they don't want um, to have these foreign um, companies that usually work on behalf of the governments, even if it's not official, but they, of course they have to follow the rules of, of the nation states where they operate. And that's one thing. And then the second thing also, like if you take the European Union, I'm just putting my European hat on, they have, they, they, they have a very bad position because on the one hand, they have the Americans that, that are controlling technology. On the other hand, on the other side of the planet, they have the Chinese who are coming up very, very strong. And Europe stays nowhere. So regulation as GDPR, as, as Shannon just mentioned right now, that's a tool like, to, okay, let's let's defend our turf. We, we kind of package it in a really nice way. Say, oh, we have the best privacy rights. But as part of having the best privacy rights, it's also like, look, we're gonna try to control these guys because this is getting out of hand, and and I think this this is getting out of hand is is a concern that all governments have, and um, and it's a big subject because um, I, I mean I think the, um, I I've been really critical, um, and I think more people have been also like it's really important about how this gets implemented because depending on how this gets implemented, and I think Christopher he talks quite frequent frequently about this. I mean these technologies, um, if you give them to the wrong people with the wrong ambitions, they can be really become um, incredible tools of dystopian worlds and of suppression and totalitarianism. So it can get really, really bad because we don't think about it enough, but identity and the identity, what we usually talk about when we talk about identity, my thinking has been shifting on that too, is we're talking basically about our data parts that are distributed in different silos. Um, um, if, if you give someone that consolidated power to manage that for you, 
Um, I mean, I, for example, I used to live in Russia like um, two and a half years, like many years ago. And um, in Russia, they have something in your passport that um, that first says that your nationality with nationality, they don't mean your passport. You have a Russian passport, but within all the Russian people, you have different minor ethnic minorities. And it says your ethnic minority in the passport. So it says um, I'm whatever Caucasian, I'm from Chechnya, blah, 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 and so on. And they have a lot of struggle in Russia around some of these minorities. Sure. And the other thing they have also, I, mean, I don't know if they still have it because I was there in 2003. They have a thing called Prapusk. And the Prapusk basically is a stamp in your passport that allows you to live in Moscow, St. Petersburg, for example, which are the most popular cities in Russia because that's where the whole economy is. It's a very centralized state. And yeah, and if you wouldn't have that that stab, which a lot of people didn't have because they were like illegally in the city, even though they live legal, we cannot think about it because in our countries, this doesn't exist. But some countries, they have that kind of stuff. Uh, well, then you would get fined or tortured by the police, whatever might happen to you. And um, so if you if you do all, if you're not, I mean, but this is a very inefficient paper system, the way we have it today. If you make all this digital and you give it all to the wrong people, and and, and then then it can get. You can really do like micro segmentation about. Um, oh, you're an enemy of the state. We're just gonna disconnect you from the financial system, security system, everything system because you're an enemy of the state right now. So they're all kind of wonderful, beautiful scenarios that can, might be created with SSI, or also all the opposite. So that's why this is a really really important subject. Yeah, you just kind of burst my optimistic <laughs> bubble right there. So I, <laughs> that was not my objective. I was like, this stuff is great, man. I love this. Sign me up. And now I'm like, I oh, don't think no, so. <laughs> no, that's not my objective. No. But I, um, I, I think um, the, the more you think about this, it's, like, I, I've been in the Bitcoin space a long well, time. And people usually tend to talk only about very nice, wonderful things because usually people are very enthusiastic at the beginning when they start something. And um, then over time, as you as you learn about it, you say, okay, well, it really depends how we do it. Because depending on how we do it, this might be used in some really bad ways. So that like anything, like a knife, you can cut your you can cut exactly. your meal with it, or, or you can kill people. But it's it's the problem is not the knife itself. One hundred percent. But 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 so here's the question. Let's say I have my own um, sovereign ID and that I, I control that and I manage that somehow. That's mine for life. Okay. Um, how does just simple things? How do I get it? When do I get it? And what happens if I lose it? And what if how, what prevents somebody else from taking it? I mean, because I, I, my Facebook account can get hacked. And somebody could assume my identity on Facebook. It happens all the time. I'm, I'm sure you've got messages from your friends. And then like 20 minutes later, they're like, that wasn't me. <laughs> that wasn't me. <laughs> yeah. So, so walk me through that. How do, how do you get it? Keep it? Make sure somebody doesn't take you, you it. You want to go first again? I mean, it's, and sorry, guys, this might be like really simplistic questions. No, for no, you, the, but, the but questions you, are you know, when you're when you're a mile deep in it, like you guys, for people who are just dipping their toes in the water, these seems like yeah, you know, common yeah, sense. No, they're great questions. Um, so, self-sovereign identity (SSI). Uh, we usually call it SSI now because self-sovereign has some other implications that have nothing to do with what we're talking about in in the U.S. in particular. Uh, so, SSI is a philosophy. Uh, it is an idea that you have an identity that you can control, that you can change, that you know what it says that uh, 
you can at least be aware when people put credentials on it. So again, to a certain extent, everything else is, yes, we need to figure out how to implement it, but it could be done in a million different ways. Most of the ways that we're looking at right now are cryptographic, uh, possibly almost all of them. Um, DIDs, are decentralized identifiers, are one of the main routes for identity. Uh, they're just kind of a really big number that you have. Um, and uh, these DIDs have uh, things called methods in the specification, and each DID method describes all of the questions that you just asked, you know, how is it put together? So, for example, there is one uh, DID method that uh, is related to the Bitcoin blockchain, where you uh, root your DID method in some cryptocurrency that you are holding. Um, and uh, this, uh, you use the uh, little bit of data that you can put into a Bitcoin transaction to point to um, a file that has more information, essentially. Uh, and uh, then you update your identity by spending the transaction, essentially spending your Bitcoins. Um, so then uh, some of your questions are, how do I get that identity? Well, I, I basically register it with this uh, cryptocurrency that I hold. How do I make sure I don't lose it? Well, it's all protected by a private key on Bitcoin. Um, how, what happens if I lose it? Well, you'd lose it by losing the private key. And so in that case, you start falling back to, uh, how do I make sure I don't lose a private key for Bitcoin? So maybe you back it up. Uh, you know, we have uh, at Blockchain Commons where I work with Chris, we have a book called Smart Custody, which talks about all of this type of things. And one of the things we say is, well, get a steel plate, scribe your uh, mnemonic words for your uh, private key onto that steel plate, go put it in a bank, and then do it again in a bank in a different state. Okay, you're probably not gonna lose it then. Uh, we have other answers like Shamir secret sharing, where you can uh, shard up your private key and you can send it to different people. So the Bitcoin uh, DID, it's not really one that's um, in serious usage. There's ones in much more serious uh, usage, uh, there's Sovereign, there's uh, uh, Manu's uh, something one. Um, Veris one. Veris one, thank you. And so there's ones that are much more serious than that one uh, in serious usage intended for real world things. So that one is too. But I use that one because people might know what Bitcoin is, might understand sure. what the private keys are. And so it gives an example where you can put it back on another thing. But in yeah. general, it's going to be, you have some secret, you know have to know how to protect the secret, you have ways to back up the secret. Uh, you want to be able to recover your identity um, by, for example, in the Bitcoin example, basically moving it over to a new transaction, or you want to be able to reconstruct your identity by recovering your yeah. shards, yeah. as an example. So what, what more would you say on that all, Alex? No, Mark I, uh, and Shan, yeah, I was just remembering because that's one of the key things, because before I was talking about the competition between tech companies and and the geopolitical aspects for governments and nation states. But there's one key aspect, and that's basically the, um, the low-hanging fruit of, of this whole thing right now, which is for a lot of companies, holding all this data is becoming really dangerous because um, almost everyone is getting hacked. And so that's one big aspect. And, and it's not only that. I mean, that's making it expensive, but it's also this whole reputation problem. But it's also like a lot of companies, that they don't want to have the data anymore because it's become has become a toxic kind of toxic waste and also like hey if if why even have to manage this i can maybe externalize it we can create new business models new process around this 
And 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 one example that Strahman would be he would love to talk about it. I mean, he's working on a big project with the WHO, the World Health Organization, where, where they're creating um, um, COVID credentials for, for the world. And 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 so for those kind of scenarios where you where no one is kind of willing to to have the whole data stored in a centralized database, and we you, you want to have different systems to be able to talk to each other just because they have the same protocols. Um, for those examples, um, SSI is awesome because it kind of solved this, this global coordination problems where many different systems will not be able to talk with each other, where you don't want to have someone to hold that central power because no nation state or no organization wants to give that power to any of the other organizations or then say okay if we use this which is decentralized then we're all happy and that's one of the things um, that we're seeing right now as as this very current theme of of covid but it happens with all kind of things for banking like if you want to do kyc aml like know your customer uh, know your customer and anti-money laundering processes for banking then they say oh, okay look i can save all this onboarding money now i will compete on a different level i will not be competing anymore on having walls around my customers because it's really difficult for them to get in and out and people are really lazy. Now people can move their banking identity out from one bank to another bank and banks will be competing on a different level about how they maintain that, that customer base. And so it's an infinite space then basically and it, it, because it touches from this very strategic power shifting global vision all the way down to the very down to earth um, business oriented solutions that, that people need. It's it's funny. I mean, I'm in the process of of setting up a an, a, an investment account. I, I have another account. Um, I want to set up a, a different type of one, and I have to fill out all the same forms that I filled out before. And 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 by the way, I have to fill them out and then fax them <laughs> or mail them in, which is yeah. like, how yeah. secure is that, right? You know, it's like what could go wrong. And, um, and, and it's just, it's time consuming, it's repetitive. And of course, there's always one mistake on the form, which requires me to, you know, rinse and repeat. It's just annoying as heck. Um, but I want to go back to something that, you know, one of the tenets of, uh, of GDPR and a lot of the other uh, privacy guidelines out there is the idea of anonymization. So there, you're right that a lot of companies are looking at data as a toxic asset or not even asset liability i should say right and so what do we do with it at the same time there can be there's value that can be gleaned from that information so for example uh, behavior behaviors or you know users uh, what what are people doing and where are they doing etc without actually tying that to a specific uh, person right just you can you could look at trends and so if you as a company were able to collect data but it was anonymized because it was all ssi right you couldn't see who the individuals were um so but you could actually uh get you know analytics related to behaviors consumer behaviors whatever it would it could be it could be immigration behaviors whatever governments or large companies are looking at for could this be a way to kind of solve some of those gdpr issues because you know gdpr is very very uh, restrictive in terms of the type of data you have to have a very specific business case or or um or if it's a government they have to have a, a, a particular reason to collect the data store the data they have to notify the people who, who you know hey you know we're, we are using your data here's how we're using etc um i can ask for them to sh give me all their data back that they have about me they, they can delete me from the system depending on you know so on and so forth 
could this be kind of a, um, uh, a way for these organizations to collect the data, but also protect themselves from the toxic effects of it? I, I, I would, I would say probably not, but, uh, the, not, okay. <laughs> my guess is the G, G, GPD, GDPR, GDPR yeah. would probably, uh, label a DID as uh, personally identifiable information. Um, we think that uh, IP addresses are probably PII. I don't know. I haven't looked. They, no, they are. They are. I, IP addresses included. But I, I thought if you had your sovereign identity, nobody can see who you really are. Or maybe I'm well, it depends that. on what you're doing with it. Uh, it may very well okay. be totally identifiable. It may well be totally pseudo, pseudo anonymous, pseudonymous. But even if it's just synonymous like uh, Bitcoin is, that doesn't mean that people can't track it down. Now, ah, okay. So you you aren't you aren't you aren't completely anonymous. Even if you have your uh, your your sovereign I, ID, I, it still can be it still can be linked to the the, the, the natural person. I, I would who, say that someone yeah. could choose to um, create a DID system, a, a self sovereign system that is totally anonymous, uh, that you know is all uh, zero knowledge proofs that there's no way to connect it up, and maybe they could do it all right. I'm saying it's not a necessary characteristic of the system, and I suspect not how it's usually going to be used. It's I suspect either going to be usually used with, hey, I want to prove who I am on the net, or, hey, I want to have a permanent identity on the net, even if it's theoretically not connected to me. But like I said, even with Bitcoin, right. lots of people like to say it's anonymous. It's totally not anonymous. It's Okay, so... And that's something I thought. I thought when I was trading in Bitcoin, nobody knew who, you know, I guess they can track through the wall. But walk me through that. How can somebody uh, discover who I am through my Bitcoin uh, transaction? Through a mistake. Um, but okay. The, <laughs> I'm the, sure I've made two it. issues here. Uh, first of all, there are some correlation issues with Bitcoin. You know, their whole blockchains there. You can see every transaction that's ever happened. I can theoretically look who has a little bit of money now and see every single address that that's passed through. And so maybe 10 years ago, I posted to a forum and said, hey, if you want to uh, post, if you want to send me some Bitcoins, here's an address. It's quite possible that uh, there's a lot of discussion of good hygiene practice on Bitcoin, have a new address every time. Most people don't do that. And so it's right. possible if someone wanted to do a lot of work that they could track it down. It's possible that if even if I didn't make that mistake, if, you know, my best friend did, that it might be trackable to me. You know, you start looking at groups. There's, you know, all kinds of wide scale stuff. So we say it's pseudonymous, not not anonymous. And it's important difference. Maybe practically most of the time it won't be tracked down. But, you know, if you depend on that and it's important, you're going to get bit. Um, the reason I said but in there is that I think the DIDs and self-sovereign identity, SSI, are going to be really great for companies that are afraid of the toxic effects of um, uh, GDPR-related identity and other laws that you know, as they come online. And it's because I'm holding that information now, not necessarily them. Um, I got you. Okay. I got and you. And that, that's where the difference is. Alex? Thanks. Thanks yeah, more. no, no, I, I, I completely agree with Shannon. I, I was just at, you know, like within the 
SSI community, they're like different, like any community, you know, like it's, it's like any community, you see all these people banging their heads because they're like, oh, my idea is better and this and that and whatever. So, uh, so you, you have a, a, a one group of, of these that I've been close to, and they would probably argue that with zero knowledge proofs, and you can really achieve it, that the data is completely anonymized and, 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 and that GDPR is not an issue at all. Um, um, and then you would have other groups that they, they, they will argue, look, technically this is not necessarily, it makes it too complex and it, it will not work, you know? So, so you still have, I think like um, the SSI community overall is, is still in the stage, you know, where, where, where these different um, community gr groups are, are, are pushing for, for, di for, for different directions. So you cannot really talk about one single community one single SSI technology. That's why we have a specific chapter um, about architectures that has been written by Daniel Hartman, where he tries to explain like the different approaches to architecture and uh, what what those type of considerations mean when 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 you choose that. And 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 then just to add on on top of what Shannon made, just all very correct about uh, about Bitcoin. It's it's all true like this, but it's also true that. Um, um, I mean, especially criminals, and that, that's what has been giving uh, a bad reputation to, to Bitcoin, is when you use mixing service, and if you're technically sufficiently sophisticated, you can't really make it anonymous, or anonymous enough, so that they cannot really track, it, track, track you down. And that's the whole discussion, and I think, and this discussion is incredibly fascinating for me, I mean, especially for, like, for something like your program, where you talk about privacy and cybersecurity, it's like it, we always have this discussion about, and, and that's the, um, we haven't talked about this yet. We have this big discussion about, okay, about freedom really. It's like, okay, if, if we want to have absolute freedom for the people, like, and that their privacy is protected, that's really good. I mean, no one can argue with that. But at the same time, that means that anyone with bad intentions will, will benefit from this absolute freedom and privacy too. And then we, as a society, we kind of need to find a balance and to, um, um, of okay, what is the right balance of that? Because of course you will have some people that will abuse that freedom or that privilege of having this full privacy, um, and 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 that's a big discussion we have in the SSI community too. Because um, and 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 the way I I explain it in the book or my approach to explain it in the book, I call it um, um, blockchain believers or, or or the systems of blockchains believers. Because basically it, it all depends on what you own belief system is. And what I, I have identified, I personally, I come from the very hardcore decentralization kind of freaky type of person. And over time, because I've been working with other people that I call the DLT people, which are distributed, uh, distributed ledger technology people, the, the value systems that drive us are very different because in, in the decentralized crowd, which is the Bitcoin, the hardcore soft, free software movement people, they, they believe um, we need to avoid centralized power because centralized power gets corrupted, uh, corrupted over time and will be abused. And because of that, full decentralization is the best. And whatever the down downside of that is, that's what the price we have to pay as a society to, to, abuse, to, to avoid a, something worse than that. And on the other hand, um, um, we have the DLT believers, that's how I call them, where they say, well, look, I mean, society as it works right now is pretty good. And yes, there can be some improvements made to how the system is right now. And if we just make a little, a couple of tweaks with a little bit of decentralization, everything will be good. And these people, very often, they tend to, to confront each other. And, um, and 
but we see this in the crypto community or the cryptocurrency community. We also see this in the SSI community. And, um, and, and but that's one of the big questions. And, and that's why we, we all as a society needs to need to build a dialogue around those questions and see what the benefits and the downsides are of all these technologies. Because as we said before, I think we, uh, we need to, to have a very present that they can create a wonderful world, but it can also create a dystopian world. And my hunch is over time now, that the probability of creating dystopian worlds is always much easier than creating a positive world or something that is good for everyone. So we need to pay special attention so that we can get something utopian out of it. Well, it's uh, it's it's interesting because I mean things are moving so quickly these days, right? And and um, it's our ability to adapt on the fly to these new concepts and paradigms. The um, I, I, I'm I'm reading Herodotus, uh, who was the we call him the father of Western history. Um, but he, he he most of his book histories, which can be translated as research as well. Um, there's a couple themes that run through it. And one of the themes is Persians versus the Greeks, but it's not just the Persians. Persians is this, it's a king who tells everybody what to do and it's all central command. And then you have the Greek city-states and and they're trying to get organized and it's like herding cats. And so it's very decentralized. And, and, and this theme that goes through it is like, well, which one is more effective? Which one is more effective, you know? And which one is more adaptable? And, um, and sometimes it's not really that clear, um, but it's a, it's, I think it's a, thing that, a theme that we've been grappling with for a very long time, but the, the need to accelerate our learning is, is, is super important. Um, just a couple more questions here. Uh, you, in the book, um, there's, a, I think, a chapter dedicated to, uh, to Canada and, um, and, what, and, and how they're enabling uh, SSI. Could you talk yeah, a little bit about um, that? Shine, if you want, I go for this, but I'm sure you have some comments too. Um, um, this book has been written by Tim, Tim Boma and, um, and a colleague of his from the Canadian government. And, and, and the Canadian government, in this sense, is really, really interesting. It's, it's so different to the United States, for example. Because in, in Canada, <laughs> I mean, they, they have similar principles there, but uh, they have similar principles there. But in, in Canada, they, they kind of lift this um, um, federated system in a very strong way. So and um, so they they have taken up SSI in a really big way um, because what they are thinking, okay, we have the strong federation of provinces, and so um, we as a central government, we need to provide a platform to all of them so that they can maintain these privileges they that they have right now in all the provinces, but at the same time um, um, have something that is efficient instead of having each of the different provinces creating their own identity systems. Which is kind of what they have today. Uh, what they have today, I think, in the in the, in the U.S., it's similar with the DMV and um, and and all that stuff. But they they are pretty advanced in that stuff of organizing themselves from the Treasury Department in, in Canada. So Tim Boma, he's one of the key guys that we call him like Mr. Identity Canada because he's really he has been there for a long time. But and he describes the Pan Canadian trust framework and the pan-Canadian trust framework is basically a big framework that explains how you can integrate all the legacy systems, how you can integrate the different provincial systems and um, how you create a, a framework where SSI integrates all that so you have something that fulfills the SSI principles. And, and, and that's the key question because not everyone necessarily wants that. In the, case, in the Canadian case, the political situation and the history of Canada has created a situation what's in the interest of the Canadian government to push for something like this. But then there will be many other states where they say, well, look, come on, we don't need to have something that is self-sovereign. We are a centralized state. Everything comes here from the 
from the headquarters, I mean, many people mentioned the Chinese identity systems that, that they're doing, but we're doing this in many other countries around the world. And um, yeah, so I think um, Canada is really like, uh, like uh, showing us the way, at least in, in terms of what nation states can do. And I think in Europe too, it's very similar. We have a very nice chapter from Nacho Lamillo, who's a Spanish lawyer who's pretty very, very much involved with the European Union. And the European Union has a similar setup because you have the different nation states as part of this club called the European Union. And no one wants to give up the power. So SSI kind of becomes interesting for them because, okay, if we have this distributed system, then we can manage identity in a collective way. I, I would say that Canada was one of our, our first great excitements at rebooting Web of Trust for a uh, uh, country that was really interested in pushing this idea. Uh, I think at the end of 2018, 17, one of them, we had someone out uh, at our Santa Barbara workshop talking about a corp book, I think it was, that they were doing, which, uh, you know, let their corporations do all their registration and other information mm. in a self-sovereign way online. Yeah. But one of the things that's kind of surprised me, I said that bootstrapping was one of the main impediments we had. We've been seeing a lot of support from governments, like Alex was saying. All, all the way back at ID 2020 with the, the UN in 2016, we had people on the UN floor uh, talking about self-sovereign identity when we kicked off the uh, uh, whole um, uh, conference. Um, we've had Canada. We were in Barcelona, I guess, two years ago now, and, and the city of Barcelona was very interested. Uh, we were supposed to be in the Netherlands last year, but obviously that didn't work out. But it was a Another issue where the government was really interested in helping pursue this. So I, I hope we're going to see this increasingly. Yeah. Uh, what I would add to this, Mark, um, is that I think that's a really good point that China is making here, is that um, there's this difference about, um, about how governments look at cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and how governments look at um, SSI. Because the thing with Bitcoin is, at least in this ethos and how it started, um, the initial narrative was, uh, we want to decentralize central banks and commercial banks. And, and this didn't really fit really well um, with, the, with those people. <laughs> and, um, and, and then there are some other things. Um, so it's, it's anarchistic in its kind of approach. It's like this very cypherpunky approach. I mean, like this whole cypherpunk movement, the way they started in the early 90s, came up with this Okay, we need to defend the people against centralized power. And because of that, we will create the technological tools. We will not only talk about it, we will create the tools. And Bitcoin, in that sense, was the creation of that tool to help the people protect them in, against inflation, about monetary abuse, blah, blah, blah. And in SSI, it's pretty different because when you look at the SSI community, they, they don't necessarily look for the elimination of the nation state because they're abusing the power. Um, the SSI community, usually it's more like, okay, we don't want to have... Um, abuse by, by these big technology companies that are commercializing the data and abusing the people because uh, people are not noticing, blah, 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 and all the consequences that it has. And they find uh, a happy partner in the governments because the governments are like, oh, yeah, look, this is exactly what I want to do, by the way. Um, and you don't want to stop nation states, so our interests are pretty much aligned. Um, and, and, and then you don't have this whole speculative aspect that you have in the cryptocurrency space which makes it easy because there's no discussion about KYC, AML, if there's money laundering or not. It's all about, okay, let's make these processes better and protect the people. And it's pretty much aligned with government interests. So I think um, at least from 
the way I see it, there are always these kind of power structures about what uh, what each player is kind of trying to achieve. And in SSI, I think it just happens to be what 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 is in everyone's interest, except in, for those big players that are kind of um, creating the surveillance economy as we have it today. We know who they we know who they are. And they know who we are. Yeah. So, <laughs> hey, gentlemen, I, I got to say, uh, normally uh, these episodes go on for thirty to forty-five minutes, and sometimes around that time we start to kind of the conversation starts to peter out. Um, we've been going for an hour here. Uh, I'm sure that we could go for several more because there's a lot of information to cover here, and you guys know it. I mean, it's a, it's a mile deep for you guys. Uh, so I really appreciate it. I'm going to put links to uh, discount coupons for your book, Self-Sovereign Identity, in the podcast description and in the uh, YouTube video description. I'll put links there. Uh, and, and I'm sure you have some, some if you people want to follow you, like, are you on Twitter or what, do you have a preferred social channel or are you into that at all? Either or. Um, Now's your chance. (laughs) You can uh, see most of what I'm doing on GitHub right now through the uh, blockchain commons repo. We're doing a lot of work on figuring out decentralized things that will hopefully help the whole community. Uh, And also through Web of Trust. Uh, There's some Web of Trust info um, uh, repos too. Uh, And the last thing I would say there uh, is that, hey, check out Web of Trust dot info because we're doing a virtual salon in three weeks on february 25th which is going to be our first salon uh since the pandemic and a way to kind of see what we're doing on that excellent excellent yeah i know yeah i would very much recommend that Uh, i love um rebooting web of trust so uh we recommend everyone to join it to learn more and yeah i mean i i i i'm best pinged via twitter it's alex parkshot my very easy last name and uh, <laughs> <laughs> easy yeah, for you exactly. to say <laughs> and um yeah and, and check out identity identity where we will be uploading chapters of the book and you have if you search for at manning for self sovereign identity you find the book and you can already read those chapters that are online already i think like 10 chapters online and the book will be coming out very soon in april awesome gentlemen really I, sorry i cut you off Shannon. just want to say uh Twitter's Apple Klein. It's about the only other place I talk about self-sovereign identity. I talk a lot about my role-playing books, though, too. So, <laughs> awesome. It's all good. All good. Well, really enjoyed having you on the show, and um, you know, let's uh, let's touch base sometime, maybe middle of next year or something like that, or this year. We're already into this year, but uh, wish you guys the best in 2021. Thank you, so Thank you. for having us. Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity.